Well, we're living in a year where fear has dominated the lives of multiplied millions of people. Fear for our health, fear for our economic well-being, fear for our lifestyles, and fear for our future. Fear has three immediate side effects. Number one, the loss of rationale. When you fall into fear, you immediately lose rationale. Uh, Katie and I were kind of chuckling to each other because there's a guy in our neighborhood. He's one of our neighbors. And um, the guy wears three masks at one time, all the time. Now, I understand if you're in a crowded place and you want to wear a mask, that's perfectly fine. But, but this guy runs at 6 a.m. every morning. There's no one on the street, and he doesn't have one mask on while he's running. He's got three, you know? He drives alone in his car by himself with three masks on, you know? It, it, it's the loss of rationale, you know? When fear comes on you, it's like, you know, I think three masks will be better than one, and I'll wear it all the time. I'll be in the shower, and I'd probably be safer if I wore this, you know... Just the loss of rationale. Second side effect of fear, distress. The word distress is defined as extreme anxiety, sorrow, and pain. There's some distressed people in the room today. And God ordered your steps to be here so that you could hear this word. If you're dealing with extreme anxiety, sorrow, and pain. Listen for a few minutes. Then number three, fear blocks the bridge to approach God. Fear blocks the bridge to approach God. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, faith's the antithesis of fear. Fear is the antithesis of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The word please in the Greek there means access. Without faith, there's no bridge. For you to get to God without faith, it's impossible to please God for they that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Everything in the kingdom of God functions in our lives through faith. Everything in the kingdom of darkness functions in our lives through fear. Fear is faith inverted. Say that with me. Fear is faith inverted. Faith enables you to take dominion. Fear enables you to be dominated. With faith, you rule over. With fear, you are overruled. Fear will never lead to a successful outcome. That's why the scripture says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's the scripture that should be pasted over this whole year. On your 2020 calendar, you just ought to write that scripture. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. In our text, Psalms 11, I want you to live with this psalm for a couple of days. It's powerful. There was an insurrection brewing in King David's administration. Traitors had infiltrated his kingdom and hatched an assassination plot. So David calls his counselors together and they deliver the bad news that it's no longer safe for him to remain in the city. They suggest that he flee to the mountains and hide until his enemies can be found out. So in verses one through three of the text, David is, is exasperated and he's repeating what they've just told him. He said, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul? How can you say this to me? How can you tell me to flee like a bird to the mountain? How can you tell me that the wicked bend their bow and make their arrow on the string ready? That, that, that's really descriptive terminology in the Hebrew it, it goes into uh, like sound effects, uh, words that make sound effects, you know. You know how um, not everybody's really familiar with uh, bow and arrow, but, but you know how the, the, the immediate fear, you know, you hear if you walk into your house and, and you hear a gun cock, you know. 
it, it's, a, it's a sound that, that brings the sensation of an imminent threat. And so what, what they're saying to him is, do you know the sound that the arrow makes when it slides into the string of the bow and it, the bow is pulled taut and it's aimed at you? David, that's how dangerous it is for you right now in the palace. They're everywhere. They're hiding in secret and you're going to be shot and you're not going to know where it comes from. These are voices of panic, voices of fear. And I've learned when someone gives themselves over to fear, they become fear's advocate. I want you to think about that. When someone gives themselves over to fear, they become fear's advocate. And they begin to plead fear's case on fear's behalf. And if you don't step over into the fear they're standing in and agree with them, they'll get angry with you for standing in faith. And like a prosecuting attorney, they'll start taking all of the evidence that fear is already presented and they'll start pleading the case on behalf of fear. I want to tell you, husbands and wives, parents and children, business people, uh, whatever sphere you're walking into, if you're in an environment and, and there's some fear there, there's some circumstances there, and uh, you bring up something negative and someone else brings up something positive, don't take the bait of becoming fear's advocate and an advocate for the negative. Sometimes we will stand and argue people down just because they're standing in faith and they're not as scared as we are. Do not do that. Always pause when you find yourself arguing with someone who's standing on the word of the Lord and vice versa. When you're standing on the word of the Lord, don't get too angry at people that become fear's advocate because fear unsettles the mind and discombobulates. And it's impossible for you to think rationally when you are sitting in a position of fear. Understand the spiritual dynamics of what is happening. Stay in faith and they'll eventually come around. If you stay in faith, one of two things will happen. You'll either convince them or they'll live long enough to see your faith work for you. And over time, they'll say, you know what? I've been telling you, you were going to go down and be destroyed so many times, but you just kept standing in faith. And I think, you know what? Maybe your way's working better. You know. So David is dealing with a, a room full of fears advocates. And he says, or they say to him that they, they bring their final closing argument in verse number three. They, they, they thought this was the death nail. They said, David, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I've heard that a lot this year. I, didn't, I haven't heard it that way, but I've heard it a lot. Here's what it really means. What are they saying? They're saying... Sure, you're righteous. What's righteous mean? Right standing with God. Okay, sure, you're in right standing with God. That's great. But the foundation of the nation and the foundation of the kingdom, the foundation of the society, the foundation of the economy, and the foundation of your safety are crumbling. So if the foundations be destroyed, what good is it? that you're in right standing with God, right? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? David, everything is falling apart. Our counsel to you is you need to get out of here and run to the mountains. When they say foundations, they mean social order, the government, society, economy. And when those foundations are strong, we walk through life pretty confident. But when those foundations start to crumble, a lot of people lose their minds. David sits for a moment and he starts to think about his life. And he comes to the conclusion, you know, all my life, threats have been telling me to run. His daddy was the first one. You've been in this church any amount of time. You heard me teach on David. You know that David was the eighth son of Jesse. And he was born out of an affair his father had. 
So you got seven boys growing up in the house, seven older brothers, all from the same mother, you know, and then you got this one redheaded, ruddy boy living in the house that was the result of an adulterous affair. He was bullied in the house. He was persecuted in the house. And so his father told him, run out there with the sheep, stay with the sheep, get out of this environment. Just you better run. While he's keeping the sheep, a bear comes up and growls at him. You better run. Another time, a lion comes up and roars at him. You better run. Then a giant named Goliath stood in front of him. Said, am I a dog that you come out here with a slingshot and some rocks? You better run. Then in King Saul's palace, King Saul threw a javelin at him. You better run. And David starts to think, all of my life threats have been telling me to run. And yet all of my life, my God has sustained me. And he starts thinking to himself, you're telling me to leave the kingdom that God gave me. David started thinking about it. He says, you know, I didn't raise myself up. I didn't anoint myself to be king. I didn't build this thing by myself. God gave me this. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to get you to give him ground. God gave you. I'm going to say that again. One of the tactics of the enemy is to seduce you with fear and try to talk you into giving him ground. God gave you. And David said, I'm not going to leave the kingdom that God gave me. If it took God to get me here, it's going to take God to remove me. If it took God to promote me, it's going to take God to fire me. I didn't do anything by myself. I didn't bring that giant down by myself. I didn't defeat the Philistines by myself. I didn't get this crown on my head by myself. It was God all the time. And if he was God enough to bless me back then and to keep me back then and to protect me back then, I am persuaded he is God enough to keep me now. And so in verse four, the king finally answers, right? They say, you need to leave. They're going to, they're aiming their arrows at you. You're, you're going to be destroyed. And, and David gives a strange answer. He says, uh, they said the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And David answers and it's strange. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, David was saying, I love this. He's saying, your foundations may be destroyed. The foundations of your government, the foundations of your economy, the foundations of your society, the foundations of your elections, your foundations may be destroyed. But my foundation ain't in none of that. Let me tell you something, Mr. Advisor. I've never built my life on how well the economy is going. I've never built my life by how positive or negative the news cycle is. I never built my life by the presence or the absence of threats. Those things are your foundations. And yes, your foundations are crumbling. But as far as my foundation, you want to talk about foundations. You want to talk about foundations. The Lord is in his temple. God is still on the throne. He's still on the throne. Somebody say it. He's still on the throne. Mine aren't destroyed. He's still on the throne. His eyes behold. In other words, God sees what's going on. David says, I refuse to go into distress because this government, it's not my foundation. This society is not my foundation. God is still on the throne. A few things David teaches us in this Psalm. I want to share them with you. They're practical points, but they're powerful. Point number one, stop ruling the world. 
I want you to get a real attitude and look at your neighbor and say, stop ruling the world. Look at the difference between verses three and four. Now, look at the difference between verses three and four. Verse three, David, you better run and hide. The foundations are being destroyed. What are we going to do? Verse four, God's on the throne. God is on the throne. Or another way to say it, God's in control. In other words, David's saying the Lord rules ultimately, not us. Much of our anxiety comes from the moments in our life that remind us we're not in control. I'm going to say that again. Much of our anxiety comes from the moments in our life that remind us we are not in control. When things fall apart in our lives, it feels like the whole world is out of control. But remember, it was never in your control in the first place. Daniel 4.17 says the most high rules in the kingdom of men. When I was a little boy, um, they, it wasn't a law back then. Uh, they, they didn't used to make the kids ride in the back seat. That's a relatively new thing. Uh, when I was a little boy uh, and daddy was taking me to school, you could ride up in the front seat, you know, in the passenger seat. And so they had this little toy. It was a little toy steering wheel. And you could hook it to the, anybody know what I'm talking about? You could hook it to the glove compartment, you know. And it makes the little kid feel like driving the car, you know, so every morning on the way to school, you know, and I felt like I was driving the car. I wasn't driving the car. And a lot of modern people in 2020. are like those little kids with the toy steering wheel. You think you're driving the car. You are not driving the car. You are not in control. David's advisors are losing their minds. And David said, relax. You're not in control of that. And whether I stay here or I go hide, I'm not in control of when I die. God is in control. Romans 8, 28 reminds us, and it should be a foundational scripture in your faith life, that all things, all things work together for the good of them who love God, who are the called according to watch his purpose. Bad news. You know, God is not called or inclined according to your purpose. The only thing he's interested in is if you are called and aligned according to his purpose. And if you are, he promises that no matter how bad or threatening things look, it can't happen to you without it working for your good. No, think about, think about the disciples. The disciples walked with Jesus and heard his messages. They felt his anointing, the anointing of the risen Christ I mean, the anointing of God incarnate, the anointing of Jesus, the word made flesh. You know, they, they felt that. They watched his miracles. They had a front row seat when he healed the sick and raised the dead and multiplied the fish and the bread and turned water into wine. They, they saw all of that. But then they saw him get arrested, taken to the whipping post, beaten and then nailed to a cross and they watched the prince of life give up the ghost, hang up his head and die. And when they did, they all ran away. You know, Peter denied that he ever knew the Lord. Thomas said, I quit. I ain't messing with y'all church folks no more. Y'all crazy. Y'all going to get me killed. And the rest of the disciples went and locked themselves up in a room, you know, And they had to have been thinking, watching him die, you know, the foundations are destroyed. And what are we going to do? You know, how can any good come out of this? This, this this is it. This, this is the thing. This is the thing that's going to destroy us. And yet the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what, what the disciples forgot is that God 
is in control. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was God's gift to humanity because he loved us so much. It was how God would redeem and forgive the sins of every person that came in faith and approached him through the blood of Jesus. What the disciples didn't realize looking aghast at that awful scene was it was all within the plan of God and every single wound Jesus incurred, God was in control of it. In other words, they didn't realize that God could even take the evil things that evil people do to you or the painful things or the grief causing things. God can even take those things because they're things. And Paul said, all things will ultimately work together for the good of them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't matter what you're going through this morning. If you love God and you are called according to his purpose, then the distress you are going through right now will ultimately turn into your good. Something good is going to come out of this trial you're going through. Something beautiful is going to come out of the pain you're going through. Something powerful is going to come out of the threats and all of the negative words that have been rendered against you because it is working for your good. And since it is, you can stop ruling the world. Now, I knew that wasn't going to be a big point because we've got a lot of control freaks in here. You know, you're a control freak. I know it. Don't worry about it. You like to control everything and everyone and even God, you know. But you keep living and you're going to find out, you know, how, how little control you really have over your life. Martin Luther, the famed father of the Protestant Reformation, the man who took a nail and drove it uh, with the 95 Theses, he drove it through the door of the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany on Halloween, incidentally. And he was, Luther was a, was kind of a portly guy, kind of big, and he had a real big personality, very charismatic, very good with words, could turn a phrase. People loved to hear him preach. But like most great preachers, he wasn't a great administrator. And uh, in his day, compared with the other uh, intellectuals, he wasn't really considered brilliant. So there was a, a, a second reformer, somebody that was on his team named Philip Melanchthon. Now Melanchthon, he's the guy on the right. Philip Melanchthon was brilliant. And he helped set up a lot of the infrastructure and the organization of the Protestant Reformation that Luther gets a lot of credit for. Thing about Melanchthon was he was a worrier. Okay. He was a hand wringer. You know, he was a, what are we going to do? And uh, you can imagine, or if you've ever studied your history, you know, the Catholic church was very angry with Martin Luther when he produced the reformation and they, for all intents and purposes, put a hit out on him, you know, and Luther's life was in danger multiple times. And finally it got so bad. Melanchthon came to him, Philip Melanchthon. He came to him and he said, we need to get out of here. Okay. They're, they're, they're coming to get us. Everything is falling apart. In other words, the foundations are destroyed. You're righteous, but what good is it? Because we're about to be killed. And Luther famously, he's famous to, to quote this. He said, let Philip cease to rule the world. In other words, you're not in control. I'm not in control. Now, listen, that's cold comfort, but it's comfort nonetheless. God is in control. But here's the thing. When we worry and wring our hands like Melanchthon, what are we really doing? What are you really doing when you worry? Now, I know we have a lot of control freaks, and those of you that aren't control freaks are worriers. So just the whole, whole crowd here, okay? When you worry, what are you doing? When you worry, you're, uh, what you really need to realize is 
your heart is making an announcement about your deepest values, you know? Because when you worry, what you're really doing is in your heart, in your heart of hearts, the deepest part, you're contending with God for the control in your life, right? Because as a Christian, you know, ultimately, God's in control, but you're worried that he's not going to do it like you wish he would do it. And that's why you're wringing your hands and worried and pacing the floor and so full of anxiety because you really do think it would be better if you were holding the reins. You know, I went, I went snowmobiling with my uncle several, several years ago, and I was too little to, to drive, so I was sitting on the back. I thought I was going to die the whole time, you know, terrified. And you know why I was so scared? Because I wasn't, you know. All of the ladies that give your husbands a hard time when he's driving, you know, the reason you feel he's driving so dangerously. Yeah, y'all look at me like that. I don't care. The reason you think he's driving way too fast and taking the corners way too sharp is not because he's a terrible driver. Look at all the men scared to clap. Look at all of them scared to say anything, scared to say amen. Sit there, scaredy pants. The reason you feel that way because I've seen you drive, and when you get behind the wheel, oh my God, if I was running from the police, I would want you to be driving. But the reason you feel that way is because you are not in. Stop. Thank you, brother. I saw that little point. I appreciate it. I'm going to file that away in my cabinet. God is on the throne. God is on the throne. Point number two, take the test. Take the test. Verse five, David says, the Lord tests the righteous. He's telling his advisors, look, something that y'all don't understand is these kind of situations, they aren't new to me. I've learned God will test his people. Now, what David's doing, it doesn't seem like it when you just skim through the psalm. That's why you can't just read the Bible. You have to read the Bible. It doesn't seem like it on first glance, but David is giving something very nuanced here. Verse 4, you know, God's in control. Okay? Verse 5, the Lord tests. In other words, just because God's in control doesn't give you an excuse to mentally and emotionally check out of your trouble. And just become aloof and indifferent and just walk around like nothing's happening. You got to realize God never wastes trouble. If he allows trouble to come, there's a test involved. I don't know if you know how good this is this morning. My Lord have mercy. If you're going through trouble, there's a test involved. Now, God does not cause the trouble and the pain in our lives, but he allows it to test us because what trouble will do is it, whatever the deepest, you know, sediments that have settled in the bottom of your heart and soul, trouble will flip you upside down and, and bring everything up to the surface. You know, you never really examine yourself in good times. You know, you need to examine yourself when all hell is breaking loose. And there's, there's two case studies on um, how God uses trouble to test our hearts and test our lives. And uh, one of the case studies is the Jonah model. And the other case study is the Job model. Now, the Jonah model for testing is when God uses trouble to reveal sin that hides within us. Okay. The most dangerous sin isn't the one you're convicted of this morning. The most dangerous sin is the sin you don't even know you're committing in your life. 
we can get beside ourselves and not even realize we're wrong when we're wrong. It's one thing to be wrong and know you're wrong. It's another thing to be wrong and think you're right. So Jonah, Jonah's a famous prophet, a powerful prophet, great preacher. And God shows up to him and tells him to go to Nineveh to preach. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He disobeys God. God allows trouble. You know, you remember the storm, you remember the fish, you know, all the stuff that Jonah went through. What God was trying to reveal to Jonah is, Jonah, you're a great prophet and a phenomenal preacher. You've got a great anointing but you're a racist and a bigot. You hate the people of Nineveh because their skin is different than yours. You hate the people of Nineveh because of their practices, because their society is different. They talk different. Their culture is different. And really, you don't realize it, but that sin of prejudice and racism and bigotry is eating at your heart. So I want to send you to somebody you don't like and test you with the trouble you incur on that journey so that you can see through the test. Why do I hate these people so much? Oh. Hidden sin. And it didn't turn out well for Jonah. You know, that spirit, that's really hard to kill. A person has to want to kill that spirit. I can't pray a racist devil off of you, you know. Just because I want to, you have to want to let that thing go. The Job test, number two. This test reveals your true motives for serving God. This kind of trouble, the Job model, reveals your true motives. So Satan goes to God and makes a wager with him. He says, your servant Job... He's not serving you because he loves you. He's not serving you because you're God. He's serving you because you've been so good. You know, you got everything in his life hedged. Nothing can come and touch him. Uh, I bet you if you drop the hedge that your servant Job will curse you to your face. God says, I'll take the bet. So Satan begins to attack Job and God is allowing it. God's not attacking Job, but God's allowing it for a test. And through just waves and waves of trouble, I don't have to see went through so much trouble. I don't have time to get into it through waves and waves of trouble. Job's heart ultimately was tested and it was found out that he served God, not because of the gifts God gives, but because of the God that gives the gifts. He loves God. And he says, though you slay me, I'm still going to serve you. You know, I'm not not leaving you because things went wrong in my life now. Job tests come and, and visit us periodically in our Christian walks. And if you see people or know people, you know, something goes wrong in their life. They're instantly out on God. You know, how could God allow this? How could God do this? How could this happen? I lost my job. I got in a wreck. I lost this. I lost that, you know, lost the family, lost this. And, and as soon as massive losses come, they just kind of check out on God. They were never with God in the first place. They never had the right motives for serving him. If the only motive for serving God is the blessing and the benefits that come, you don't have a real relationship with God. Your heart has not been convicted nor converted. And you know, you're, you're, walking, you're walking deceiving yourself. If your only motive is the goodness of God and the kindness of God and the blessings of God, which are real, because there's going to be some times where you don't feel the kindness or feel the blessing or feel the goodness. And you have to be able to go through those times and still lift up your hands and say, Lord, you're worthy of the praise, not because of the check I got in the mail, not because of the car I'm driving, not because of how I'm living. You're worthy of the praise because you're God. You sit on the circle of the earth. Everything's up on to your power. Everything's up in your control and, and you have to learn to praise him without any natural evidence to praise him with. You have to learn how to thank him when everything in your life is going terrible and there's no reason naturally to say thank you for being God. Thank you for making the sun come up this morning. Thank you for decorating the evening sky with stars. Thank you for just being who you are. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your holiness and thank you for your glory. Sometimes that has to be your life of praise. Because there will be seasons where you can't thank them for all the joy that you have because you're so depressed you want to throw up. 
There will be seasons where you cannot thank him for the new vehicle because the one you're driving is falling apart and you're looking for a bus ticket. There will be seasons of difficulty. And in those seasons, your heart, always remember that before you let your mouth fly when the bad things happen. Always remember that. God never wastes trouble. This could just be a test of your heart. So take the test. Then finally, number three, remember the portion of your cup. Everybody say your cup. David says in verse six, upon the wicked, God will rain coals, fire, brimstone, and a burning wind. Now, uh, coals, fire, brimstone, and a burning wind. Those are all words in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the Septuagint. They're all words for judgment. Okay? So basically, David is answering his advisors, and he's saying, I'm not going to run. Um, God's in control, and um, God sits on the throne, and ultimately, God is going to judge the wicked that are coming after me. Ultimately, God is going to judge the assassins that are trying to kill me. Okay. And I thought it was interesting. He, he says, that's the portion of their cup. In other words, the cup they're going to drink is the cup of judgment. The cup they're going to drink is the cup of destruction. The cup they're going to drink is the cup of recompense for their sins. And I started shouting about that when I read it for a little bit. Cause I don't know about you. I get excited when I read about God dealing with my wicked enemies. You know, it just kind of, kind of juices me up a little bit when I read about God dealing with those wicked haters and crazy people that had the nerve to say something about me. I just get happy about it. That whole scripture, I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, curse them, Jesus, just curse them, curse them with hangnails and hemorrhoids, curse them, Jesus, just curse them. And, uh, Oh, you don't pray like that? The cup of the wicked is judgment. Well, get him. Oh, get him. You know, get him. But then I, I started looking at that cup, and it made me think about another one. How we probably shouldn't shout too much about God getting the wicked with judgment because one way or the other, we're all wicked. And we all deserve to drink the cup of the portion of judgment. We're all evil in some way, shape or form, you know? And he said that cup of judgment is going to be their portion. And what I realized was that until Jesus came, that cup of judgment was my portion. Until Jesus came, that cup of judgment was your portion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup David describes, the cup of judgment, Jesus is agonizing in prayer to the Father. And he says, Father, if there be any way that this cup could pass. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cup of the wicked. The cup that the wicked would drink and God would pour out furious judgment on them because that was their portion. And you got Jesus, he that knew no sin, you got Jesus, only begotten of the Father. You've got Jesus so desiring not to pick up that cup and drink it that he begins to pray so intensely. He begins to cry and sweat great drops of blood because his capillaries broke while he was praying with such force. 
if there's any way I can get out of drinking this. I don't want this to be my portion. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus drank the cup of the wicked. He drank the portion of judgment designated for every single one of us. And so point three was remember the portion of your cup. Because Jesus took the cup of the wicked that was destined to go into us. Now we were standing without a cup, but on the night of the Passover, he lifted up a cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. And he gives us the cup of communion, which is, which is the new Testament. God's will and testament for our lives today. The New Testament sealed in his blood. And when we take the cup of communion, what we're really doing is we're taking the portion, not of judgment. We're taking in the portion of dominion. Why do I say we're taking in the portion of dominion? Because when Jesus died on the cross, the scripture says he went into the lower parts of the earth. Okay. He went down into hell and he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he had the authority to do it because he shed his innocent blood for our life, sin and wickedness. When he walked into hell, hell had nothing they could do to hold him. They had nothing they could do to bind him because hell only enforces its power over those who have committed sin. But because Jesus took on our sins without ever committing sin, when he went into the corridors of hell, he had all power, all authority, and all dominion. It's why he walked over to Satan, knocked him off his throne, stripped the keys to death, hell, and the grave away from him and said, all power in heaven, in earth, and under the earth is given unto me. Then he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His blood is on the mercy seat. And when we take communion, what's the portion? We take communion. It is the portion of the Lord's dominion in our lives. It's the portion of the pure and holy, innocent blood applied to our hearts by faith that seals us, redeems us, breaks curses, breaks bondages, and gives us dominion over everything, including distress. If you're distressed this morning, it's because you haven't reminded yourself of the power of the blood. If you're distressed this morning, it's because you haven't reminded your soul about the power of the portion of your cup. You don't have a cup of sorrow or, or bitter wickedness to drink. You have the cup of communion. You have the bread and the body, the blood of the Lord. And when you take it, powerful things happen. When you think on Jesus as you hold the bread and you lift up the cup, your portion of dominion, powerful things happen. If you'd stand all over the building, we're going to close this service out by taking communion together. Stop ruling the world. Take the test. And remember the portion of your cup. That's what I came to tell somebody. I don't know who needed to hear it, but that's what I came to tell somebody. Stop ruling the world. Take the test. And remember the portion of your cup.
Jesus took the bread. He broke it. And he handed it out to the disciples and he says, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Broken for you. That's why as soon as I get the cracker in my hand, I always put a break in it. And I try to visualize to the best of my imagination's ability how his body was broken on the cross. I try to visualize how his body was covered with a glistening mixture of sweat and blood. Try to imagine what Isaiah wrote when he said that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. That what that means in the original Hebrew is he was beaten and tortured so bad you couldn't make out the outline of his frame as even human. He was a blob of mutilated flesh. And he did it so we could have the portion of a different cup. He took what we deserved. Has everybody been served? Is there anybody that hasn't been served communion yet? Would you wave at me if you have not been served? We have several in the balcony that have not been served. Let's wait on them. Let's go serve them ushers, please, as quickly as possible right here on this side. Oh, yeah, the musicians, do y'all have it too? Y'all got it? Everybody got it? All right. Let's get up here as soon as we can, guys. Get everyone served. Lord, we thank you for the power that gives us dominion over distress. We thank you that you're in control, that you're in charge, that you're still on the throne. We thank you for victory. The victory you won that gives us dominion. And right now, in the name of Jesus, we take authority and we take dominion over every spirit of fear, every spirit of distress, every spirit of depression, everything that's bringing the minds of your people low. We take authority over it in the name of Jesus. We speak that the Holy Spirit will cast it down and bring it down in the name of Jesus Christ. Get the bread in your hand. Lord, we thank you for your body. We thank you that we are all members of one body, the body of Christ, by faith in you. We repent of our sins. We ask you to forgive us. Thank you for using tests to show us sins that we're hiding in our lives. Right now, Father, as a congregation, individually and corporately, we repent of our sins and ask you to forgive us. And we thank you for your body that was broken. Let's take the bread together. blood of Jesus, most powerful spiritual force ever known to man. When we take it together as a church, we always lift it up over our heads as an announcement to the spirit world and the natural world. Everything in our life, from the top of our head to the sole of our feet, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Our homes covered by the blood of Jesus. Our children covered by the blood of Jesus. Our futures covered by the blood of Jesus. Our heart, our emotions, our souls covered by the blood of Jesus. Father, thank you for your blood that gives us dominion over distress. In Jesus' name, let's take it together. If you're in here, going to do this real quick. If you're in here and you've been battling debilitating distress and you want prayer, come. You're in here. You've been battling debilitating distress. Come. It's right.
up your hands if you would. May the blessing of the Lord come upon the people of God today. May you remember in spite of the threats, God's still on the throne. May that roar out of your mouth the next time you're threatened. God is still on the throne. And may you learn in ever increasing efficacy how to stop ruling the world how to take the test, how to remember the portion of your cup in the name of Jesus. Give the Lord a great hand praise. Hallelujah. I want to wish my incredible mother a wonderful happy birthday. We love you so much. I love you so much. He's the wisest person that I know on the face of this earth, and I'm so thankful for her, and I'm so thankful that God 
gave us her leadership in this church. This is a blessed church. I'm proud of this church. I love this church. But listen, listen, one thing, one thing, since we're talking about the church for a minute, I love that we are not like a super traditional denominational church. I love that about us. But one thing about it is, um, one thing the denominational churches and the traditional churches have on us just beats the brakes off us is they understand protocol and they understand order. And um, in, in, the, in the proper way things are supposed to work in church, when uh, one of your pastors loses a close loved one, the church family comes together for the home going service. And one of our pastors, Pastor Tracy, lost her mother, and we're going to be celebrating her home going this Wednesday. I understand you have your work. I understand you have things going. But Wednesday at 10, if it's at all possible, if you would make every effort to be here and just be present and honor them, uh, they're not just wonderful people in the church. They're, they're two of the pastors of this church. And it's, it's out of order if we do not, as a church body, come and give honor where honor is due as the scripture instructs us. So uh, don't get up under condemnation, but if there's any possible way you can be here on Wednesday at 10, you need to be uh, because it's, it's an exercise of honor and we want to honor their family and honor them. And we believe God is going to comfort you in... Um, an extraordinary way. We believe God, the Holy Spirit, is going to lift you up. We believe God, the Holy Spirit, is assigning angels, both morning and night angels, that come and stand by you. You will feel the wings. I've heard that in the Spirit just now. You will feel in your home the fluttering of the angel wings as they rush into your aid. You'll feel a wind go past your face and it won't be that a door is open. You'll feel an anointing on it. Just know when you feel that. It's the angels of the Lord, which the word says encamp around those that fear him and hearken unto the voice of the word of the Lord in our mouth. We speak strength and comfort to you, Pastor Tracy, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Raise your right hand. I am blessed. I'm so blessed. I'm a blessing. I am strong. So strong, I'm a strength to others. I reject distress. I reject distress. And I take, possess, and live in the spirit of the Lord's dominion. In Jesus' name. If you have your offering you'd like to sow, you have something you want to put into Bless Fest, if you haven't done that yet, or you have just something you want to honor the Lord with, get an offering and come down here and put it in the bucket. If you're watching me online, you can give online. You can text to give. You can click the give link in the comments, however you want to do it. Make sure you keep seed in the ground and God will bless you as you go forward in your life. We love you so much. We will see you Wednesday.